Hello, everybody. Uh, just a quick programming note before we begin. This call-in episode was originally intended to be me in discussion with Tana Henley, who wrote a really interesting Substack article this week, wherein she details her departure from the CBC, so the Canadian State Broadcaster, and she um, goes into her critique from behind the scenes about how that institution has changed over the years. And I was going to do a whole spiel where I connect it to (laughs) the uh, similarly discrediting trajectory of, for example, NPR in the U.S. And we were going to have a rousing um, North American struggle session as regards the complete collapse of trust in public media institutions. However, she had to reschedule somewhat last minute. So we will uh, do that a different day, hopefully sometime in the next week or so. Uh, But maybe it's all the better because when I scheduled that episode for today, I had in my head that I could kind of just skirt over the inevitable melodrama and performative commemoration theater of the January 6th anniversary. Um, I had, you know, a fleeting notion that maybe I could kind of circumvent all that nonsense and try to redirect the attention of people onto other matters. However, that was clearly naive, and I almost want to reprimand myself for having that delusion because today, you know, even in the midst of... uh, Omicron slash Okamon frenzy and so on and so forth. The political class made sure to unite and let everyone know that they are still struggling. They are still traumatized and they are still demanding action of various kinds as a consequence of January 6th, which apparently today we're supposed to commemorate with all the same awe and uh, serenity as uh, we commemorate dates like December 7th, 1941 and September 11th, 2001. Um, If you recall, in fact, and I was reminded of this because I read a or reread the post that I did kind of immediately after January 6th transpired a, a year ago. I was reminded that Chuck Schumer, who is at that point the incoming majority leader of the Senate because John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock had just won those special elections in Georgia. And so somewhat unexpectedly, you could say, uh, Chuck Schumer was about to seize the mantle of Senate majority leader. And uh, Chuck Schumer actually said, I mean, he's the one who pretty much ushered in this whole chorus of... Uh, January 6th, going down in history, uh, right alongside uh, Pearl Harbor in terms of its import. And, you know, sometimes, I guess, if enough people say it, you know, if enough people are in positions of prominence, whether it's in politics or the media, in the think tank, incestuous uh, universe, if enough of them just repeat as a mantra that a certain date is of comparable magnitude to other dates, then it just becomes sort of ingrained (coughs) into the collective consciousness and you can't really even debate it anymore because it's just been asserted or decreed from on high. 
And uh, that's what Chuck Schumer did on the uh, floor of the Senate last December 6th, 2021, when they finally were able to reconvene after the temporary interruption caused by the goofball mob, which I started calling it right from the outset, and I maintained that designation. Chuck Schumer even said that it will, quote, live in infamy January 6th, 2021, just like Pearl Harbor. So he was invoking, you know, the extremely well-known phraseology that was used by Franklin Roosevelt uh, to usher or to bring the United States into World War II. Okay, so that's the level that these people are on in terms of how they conceive the importance of January 6th. And, you know, I've never totally discounted the importance of January 6th. It certainly was unusual, right, that this marauding band of Trump supporters and followers and whoever else uh, ended up breaching the Capitol and causing a disruption. And, you know, they're clear that there was some violence, uh, although, you know, the nuances of any particular act of violence can maybe be probed and debated with kind of more granular specificity. But at the very least, it was a significant event, right? And so I'm not saying that it's ridiculous in every sense for people to discuss it. Um, And it is true that Trump had been doing something novel at the time, which is that he had taken a refusal to acknowledge the legitimacy of the election results farther than any incumbent president had really gone. At that point, people bring up Al Gore, but, you know, Al Gore to concede after the Supreme Court issued its decision. But, you know, so anyway, there, there is stuff to legitimately discuss as regards to January 6th. I'm not denying that. What I am denying is this kind of cosmic mythology that was automatically kind of burgeoned around January 6th from the very instant that it happened. It, it was like there was this pre-existing need to amp up the meaning of January 6th beyond any kind of rational constraint from the outset. If you were on social media that day, particularly Twitter, which I'm on probably more than is healthy, I'll readily concede, I mean, you, you saw it with just amazing immediacy how the vast history-making implications of this were just asserted with total you know, certainty right away. Um, and what does that do? Well, I think it precludes the kind of debate that would be necessary to situate an event like this into the uh, annals of history in the way that it was done. Um, not just for the purposes of having a accurate or intelligible historical record, but also because when you have an event that is perceived to be of such magnitude and importance that transpires, then that's all I'm, I'm, that's inevitably going to be invoked, or the legacy of it is going to be invoked for a whole host of different political ends. And you see that now today being echoed in the way that some of these commemorations went down. So, you know, Kamala Harris, I don't know if you happen to see this, and unfortunately it's kind of my job in a way to sit through it, but uh, Kamala Harris uh, gave remarks before Biden did um, from the Capitol building as this, you know, anniversary commemoration shindig. And uh, she's basically saying that in order to honor, I mean, first of all, it's contradictory how they sort of approach the significance of January 6th and their rhetoric. And I'm talking about Biden and Harris here and other Democrats as well. But Biden and Harris will, on the one hand, say 
that January 6th must be caused to unite. I mean, we must unite in condemnation of this heinous act and in defense of our democracy. And it's not about petty partisanship and it gets to the very heart of kind of our democratic compact as Americans and so on and so forth. Very highfalutin rhetoric that ostensibly is supposed to be a call to unify, right? And then on the other hand, you'll have Kamala Harris follow that up by saying, and in order to make good on these calls to unity, what we must do is pass the Democrats' preferred legislation in Congress, right? So the Democrats have this, you know, voting rights bill that's been sort of lingering in Congress dormantly. It seems like it's probably going uh, nowhere. But Kamala Harris had been kind of designated to be a chief advocate for this voting rights legislation, which has a whole lot of aspects to it, many of which can be uh, debated. You know, Republicans will say it's a nationalization or federalization of uh, voting law and and uh, wrongly supplants the authority of the states. Um, there might be something to that. I, I don't even need, necessarily need to get into the details here. I'll just note that that legislative initiative is down the line a partisan endeavor. I'm not aware of any Republican, even a Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger type, who has said that they would support this Democratic um, in voting rights reform package and for reasons that are plainly decipherable in that what would happen, seemingly, is if Democrats were to enact this voting rights reform package, it would enhance the ability of Democrats to win elections and maintain power or gain further power. And Republicans don't want that. And, you know, it's sort of an age-old question, you know, is it a partisan initiative necessarily to expand the range of voting options um, if that so happens to advantage the Democrats. I think that's a reasonable argument to be had, but nonetheless, it is a strictly partisan initiative. And what is Kamala Harris doing? Well, she's invoking the specter of January 6th to advance her calls for a partisan initiative. And you know, often you'll hear that because there are these little handful of Republicans who have joined, for example, the uh, select committee in the House of Representatives to investigate January 6th and Kinzinger and Cheney. And uh, Cheney even, Liz Cheney even brought her uh, decrepit old father uh, to the floor of the House today, apparently, for this uh, remembrance ceremony where they're all kind of reflecting on the horrors of a year ago. Um, You'll see Democrats sometimes try to claim that, oh, this isn't actually partisan because we have these two Republicans who have joined us. And it's just like, huh? I mean, in a sprawling pluralistic democracy, one party advancing its agenda is always at least reasonably likely to find at least a handful of members of the opposing party to join with it. It doesn't diminish or negate really the clear partisan content of this agenda item. Um, But that's apparently one of the rationales that they try to bandy about to make it seem like this isn't just a strictly partisan maneuver when really 
It is. I mean, just in the sense of who's supporting it versus who's opposing it, right? It's Democrats supporting it, Republicans opposing it. And Kamala Harris, you know, she'll, she'll go through the motions of um, calling for some kind of national unity in honor of January 6th and invoke, you know, all these historical events that did, in a sense, unite the country, like Pearl Harbor definitely did. I mean, 9-11 did, for better or worse. Uh, but January 6th never did in that way. Um, and there are plenty of reasons for that. Yes, one of them is that you had Trump and Trump-supporting Republicans having a fairly drastically different uh, interpretation of what happened on January 6th than most Repu- most Democrats and the media and so on. Uh, but also because, hey, I don't know, maybe the magnitude of it is actually just genuinely qualitatively different. Like, I don't know that the event which precipitated U.S. entry into World War II is really on the same level in terms of significance. Uh, I'm not sure that when Biden is always prattling about how this is the worst attack since the Civil War or something, that the Civil War is really a great precedent to think about this in terms of. I mean, have you ever looked at the death totals or the casualty rates uh, from the Civil War and World War II in the U.S.? I mean, this idea that we're now going to bunch these events together, even 9-11, which, you know, yeah, it was around 3,000 uh, dead. But, I mean, that well, it really was a radical event in the psyches of Americans. And I guess what they're really talking about, speaking of psyche, is that this was a psych- psychically important event for a lot of people. Um, that's why they kind of post hoc try to bring in these claims of historical gravity uh, because, you know, it was the culmination or climax of four plus years of extremely intense political engagement um, centered and organized around Donald Trump as a personage. And uh, you had, you know, obviously a ton of engagement pro and con. And on the con side, I mean, people went through mental upheavals. And if you know anybody who you had a falling out with, you know, through social media or something because of some Trump-related issue and then it became COVID and whatever or the riots and slash protests, then you'll know what I'm talking about. But if you don't believe me, look at the many articles that were written in mainstream venues like New York Magazine and so forth where... Therapists are interviewed, you know, usually in blue, quote unquote, areas like uh, the Bay Area or L.A. or New York or Washington or something. Where these therapists will, of course, anonymously, but still seemingly genuinely relay the just extreme emotional turmoil that so many of their clients had gone through uh, as a result of Trump merely being in office, uh, given the world historically menacing potential that was ascribed to him by his opponents and that was kind of amplified incessantly in the media. And, you know, not to get too in-depth in about it on a, it's kind of like a psychoanalysis level, uh, but clearly there was some kind of yearning for a climax to that whole narrative. And, yeah, Trump... In his foolhardy way, which, you know, we could get into, and people will accuse me of being like an apologist for January 6th, or I don't care about his 
lies or the quote big lie. I mean, first of all, does anybody actually know where the term big lie originated? I mean, in, in the context of this post-2020 period, because it seemed like it was a concerted effort that somebody made to have that term in circulation. But anyway, you know, people accuse me because I'm trying to I've always, from the beginning, from the moment this happened, tried to put it in a bit more of a rational perspective. Excuse me of being a Trump apologist. I mean, I've heard this at millions of times over the past five or six years, so that doesn't really phase me. But you know, on top of that, I, you know, much to the consternation of a lot of my more kind of right-wing followers, you know, who, you know, I appreciate on some level because I like intellectual or an ideological diversity in the people that I uh, engage with, but a lot of them were flipping mad at me for quite a while uh, post the 2020 election because I didn't really buy a lot of the premises of uh, premises of this election fraud narrative that they were putting forward and kind of aping from Trump. Um, not that I discount every single aspect of it, but it's always ugh, it was always so maddening because they would put you in the position of, oh, you have to defend the... You're, so what you're saying, that there's no fraud ever in American elections? Like, no, that's not what I'm saying really, but... I'm saying that the claims that you're individually putting forward tend not to really stand, uh, hold up to scrutiny. And I wrote a big, even a, uh, a cover or a, a feature story about this for the New York Daily News in the newspaper in December of 2020, where I went through some of the ridiculous claims that were being made about you know election resu- uh, results in uh, Detroit, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Milwaukee, and how you know they were saying that. Oh, you know, one of the key claims about why Biden was obviously somehow insulting to power on fraudulent grounds was that um, the only viable explanation for how he could have won those four states, meaning uh, Georgia, Michigan, Milwaukee, Pennsylvania, was because there was a concerted, orchestrated fraud initiative in the major cities in those states. And how is it possible, for example, that uh, Biden could have outperformed Obama, um, the first black president among these heavy, in these heavily black uh, areas. And, you know, once you dig into the actual data, <laughs> like in Detroit, for example, you'll find, and, you know, all you have to do is go into the historical records, get the 2008 data, et cetera, compare it to 2020. Obama did not underperform Biden. Biden underperformed Obama 2008 to 2020, but that's kind of, you know, getting lost in the details. Um, The point being that Trump, because of his obsession with this election fraud stuff and the uh, craziness that was kind of pumped out into the universe um, based on his inability to accept failure, um, provided the opportunity for like a... uh, a clash, you know, uh, that among its many functions, function of as this kind of psychological climax that a lot of its opponents were yearning for. Um, and I think that really is still a reason why this whole January 6th fracas plays such an outsized role in the imagination of elites, um, Democratic-leading elites and, and media elites. Um, and when I say elites, I mean, you know, I don't mean to say that flippantly because sometimes that word can be overused, but I just don't think, and maybe this is intuition in part, um, but I really don't see much 
of a single-minded focus on the issue of January 6th and like they kind of connected to issues of, you know, democracy preservation writ large and how, you know, supposedly there's a slow mo- moving January 6th every day that the Republican Party is doing to consolidate power in different states and so on. Um, I, I don't really see much interest in that issue among the general public, among people who are just kind of normal consumers of political, not even really political news, just kind of normal citizens who only uh, fleetingly really absorb much political news. Like I actually do try to make an effort uh, when feasible to talk to, quote, normies, you know, uh, people who aren't, whose lives, day-to-day lives are not dominated by the latest political controversy and aren't paid to put out takes and such. I do try to talk to them, you know, just at random, fairly regularly, and I've never heard anybody ever bring up January 6th, except for when I was in D.C. Uh, post-January 6th, and the entire city had been barricaded, you know, by, and was basically under military occupation for several weeks. I think it was actually like two months or something, or even more. Because um, that was just a hindrance to their ability to move about their daily lives, right? So, yeah, they, they talked about it, but in terms of the more, almost like metaphysical aspects of January 6th. And you'll have, you know, politicians like Biden today will talk about the sacred uh, violations, like the violations of the sacred, hollowed ground in the Capitol that the perpetrators must be held accountable for. I've almost never, I mean, literally never heard anybody talk about January 6th in those terms at all who wasn't paid by a think tank or like wasn't paid by some activist liberal organization. Right, or isn't some media hot take proprietor. Um, so to me, it does really look like a very much an elite phenomenon, um, which makes the comparison to Pearl Harbor and 9-11 all the more absurd because those events really did rock the worlds of everybody, regardless of whether you were... Um, you know, uh, politically into, engaged, right? I mean, entering World War II, or particularly in the New York City area, I mean, everybody clearly was acutely aware of 9-11 when it happened, right? But January 6th, I mean, that was contain- this is contained to the types of individuals who would populate the actual Capitol building, um, who dealt with it on a first-hand level. So the media and politicians. And because media and politicians have these elaborate narratives that they've weaved about the kind of totemic importance of January 6th, they've seemed to have projected that out onto the rest of the public as though they care on anything remotely like the same uh, intensity. I haven't seen evidence of that. I'd be curious if anybody else in this room has, and maybe you can correct me. Um, But, uh, yeah, so really is an elite preoccupation, I think, in at bottom. And uh, how is that evinced? Well, you have these constant first-person kind of uh, memoir-type expositions that journalists are doing constantly about what they endured on January 6th. So we have these, you know, kind of obligatory one-year anniversary pieces that went up And how did they kind of frame it? Because initially what happened was 
the journalists who were there and felt like they were traumatized or felt like they had a harrowing experience, you know, they, they, they talked about it in terms of their own personal feelings, right? They, they said, oh, we, I was so frightened, I was scared for my life, etc. No, no, just as to interject for a second, I think when they said that they were so frightened and scared for their life, maybe they legitimately were. I'm sure they were on some level, fine, but... My speculation is that a great percentage of that alleged fear derives from their perception of the political orientation of the mob, right? Because there's a very good chance that they could have feared for their life in a different kind of mob situation, you know, maybe with a different political orientation. I'm not going to do the, oh, what about the 2020 riots thing, which is kind of a knee-jerk response you'll often hear, but, okay, but as a thought experiment, you know, there were actually a bunch of journalists who did get harangued and accosted um, during those riots in different cities. And, you know, it never got really extrapolated into this wider sprawling narrative about how endangered they personally felt. You know, I personally, and I don't want to dwell on this, but I was in Portland in July of 2020 and got my phone snatched. I had these, you know... Antifa types uh, threatening to kill me. I mean, they told me they were going to curb stop me. So, you know, whatever. It wasn't the most pleasant experience. Um, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't then kind of uh, labor under this for the rest of time. You know, I kind of moved on. And it seemed like that would be a, an available uh, avenue for a lot of these journalists who are now so dead set on kind of like reliving January 6th every day. But... Now, be, now, a year later, they kind of have to pivot to a more kind of overarching reason why they're doing this. Um, and there was a really bizarre article that came out yesterday in the in the New Republic, which, I mean, who even knows what the New Republic is all about anymore? Um, there was like a period for a couple of years where they seemed to be doing some pretty good stuff, but the management situation at these magazines tends to be in such flux that you can't even really keep track of it. But on the 5th of January, so yesterday, a person named Grace Seegers, journalist of some sort, uh, puts out an article with the headline, quote, January 6th isn't over for me and many others who lived through it. Subtitle. Those of us who were working at the Capitol that day don't yet bear the scars, bear scars because we are nowhere close to healing. Okay, so now kind of the premise and why I'm supposed to read this article is that I need to be enlightened as to the healing process of Grace Seggers. Okay, why? I mean, why would I care? Not No offense to her. I'm sure she's a lovely person, but like, why would this merit an article in the New Republic? Well, because she has this whole kind of trick or that she has this whole approach or tack where they kind of intertwine their own psychological distress or their own kind of at least perception of their own of psychological distress with this wider narrative about democracy and the threat posed to the constitutional order and such. So that they have like a, I think you would, it, it almost meets the textbook definition of a psychodrama. Read this article. I mean, it, I actually can't recommend that you read it. Um, but, you know, if you're reading it to just observe in the wild how a lot of these media types seem to operate vis-a-vis January 6th, maybe it's worth reading. She writes, quote, January 6th has not left a scar. Scars only form when wounds heal. 
when the flesh is knit back together, leaving a mark to remember the violence done against the body, but the violence itself is past. Scars cannot form when the wound is continuously ripped back open and etched deeper into the skin. January 6th has not left a scar because we are nowhere close to healing. We cannot heal. Okay, and on and on and on with that. And she goes on to say that the wound will remain open and fester and blah, blah, blah. I mean, get some gauze or something. What do you want me to do? Uh, the, the, the point is, like, notice what they're doing. And she's not alone in this. So I don't mean to even single her out. It's just one illustrative example of journalists kind of taking this first-person experiential account of what they say they underwent January 6th and kind of connecting it grandiosely to some wider sort of theory about the state of American democracy. Um, and that's like a psychic impulse. Like it's a psychic impulse to do that. It's a psychic impulse to insert yourself as the narrator of why January 6th is significant. Because, you know, in fairness to her, it's not like you have Joe Sixpack or any average citizen in the Senate chamber bearing witness to it, quote unquote, themselves, right? They, the journalists themselves, or the journalists have to be the narrators, and that kind of gets to why it is an elite, an elite occupation, uh, preoccupation. It's the journalists themselves who uh, have taken upon themselves to pronounce upon why this event should be seen as in the same league as. Pearl Harbor, 9-11, and so on and so forth. So, um, much to my chagrin, I did get involved <laughs> to some degree in the uh, anniversary remembrances. Um, I don't know if anybody watched the Biden speech, but it's just amazing to sometimes listen to politicians rattle off these lines that never in a million years would they have ever uttered themselves. I mean, even Trump did this um, on occasion. Like, Trump ended up gaining a lot of traction, right, as a political figure because of these extemporaneous kind of broadsides he would do, right, when he would just be on stage at one of his rallies or something, kind of ranting and doing this kind of insult comedy routine and so on and so forth. And then he becomes president, and he's in these more formal settings, and he's presented with uh, formally written speeches for him to recite, and it just doesn't kind of register as natural in anything like the same way. And there's this, something like that happened with, with Biden today where he says, quote, you know, in his big, dramatic January 6th commemoration. Quote, I will stand in this breach. I will defend this nation. And I will allow no one to place a dagger at the throat of democracy. I mean, when you see Joe Biden speaking and the words that are coming out of his mouth in no conceivable universe would come out of his mouth under just normal circumstances, then it seems like there's a flaw maybe in the speech writing because... Uh, you know, you might as well have Mickey Mouse reciting that line. I mean, that's how plausible it was coming out of Joe Biden's mouth. Um, but again, it fulfills this psychic need that is out there within a faction of the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, one of the bizarre things about January 6th is that, and I've discussed this before, um, is that it kind of inverted the normal relationship between politicians and citizens in the sense that politicians were going around enjoining the general public to extend sympathy to them, right? So politicians were the ones deserving of sympathy. They were the ones making asks of the public. They were the ones whose, uh, whose needs needed to be met by their own constituents, 
Whereas usually it's the other way around, right? It's, it's constituents making demands of politicians. And you know, AOC is a perfect example of this, where she's saying, you know, please respect the trauma that she's gone through and the psychological chaos that she's experiencing. Um, she's making that demand of the citizenry. Um, and she's not alone in that, but she's, you know, sometimes has the most comical manifestations of that tendency. Um, and uh, again, it all gets to why this is fundamentally a elite preoccupation, I would wager. Um, and then just on, on one note, because I've, I've covered this uh, in the past, and then uh, I'll open it up to anybody else who would like to share a thought. Um, you know, today... You know, when I talk about how the narrative congealed immediately on, on social media, uh, one of the things I'm referring to not just is this term insurrection, which somehow became in vogue out of nowhere uh, without seeming to require any satisfaction of some basic criteria as to what an insurrection means. I mean, can an insurrection really be – is an insurrection really an insurrection if it's dispelled without much incident in, in about in a couple hours? I, I don't know. But aside from that. Uh, you saw with such frantic immediacy this term domestic terrorism being bandied about to describe January 6th, right? And uh, ever since, that's a term that has been used by uh, politicians, namely mostly Democrats, but not exclusively. I saw uh, Ted Cruz apparently use that term today as well. Um, but uh, today, you know, just I, I collected a couple examples. Uh, Senator Dick Blumenthal of Connecticut uh, Dina Titus, representative from Nevada, uh, Abigail Spamberger, Virginia, uh, Elizabeth Warren, needs no introduction. They're, they're all putting out statements where they're just in stating as fact that the people who intruded into the Capitol were, quote, domestic terrorists. And they don't make any distinction between the people who were just, who were non, not even accused of violence. Um, the people who maybe stayed in for a few minutes, which a, a lot of them did and then exited without much incident. Uh, it's just a blanket statement that they were all domestic terrorists, right? And, you know, maybe there would be some credibility to that assertion if in the year since, in the year that's transpired since the event, that anybody in the federal government, any prosecutorial authority, had actually charged or officially leveled the accusation of domestic terrorism at any of these defendants, of which there are seven over 700 um, relative to January 6th, right? I mean, you've had, you have court case after court case underway right now, some of which have been resolved, um, where the Department of Justice had the opportunity in many instances to not just bring terrorism charges, which, you know, people will point out is a bit complicated under the federal criminal code, sure, uh, but they could have done it. I mean, c prosecutors are very creative. Uh, but even beyond that, I mean, there's a, in the sentencing phase of a lot of these cases, prosecutors have the opportunity to invoke a uh, domestic terrorism sentencing enhancement to, to argue for more extensive prison time for the people who have either Pleaded, uh, pled guilty or have been found guilty. And there was a very interesting and underreported or underacknowledged uh, Politico article by Josh uh, Gerstein just this week where he confirms that in none of the 700 plus criminal proceedings that, are, that have been launched related to January 6th, 
by the Department of Justice. In none of them has the Department of Justice sought to impose a sentencing enhancement related to, quote-unquote, domestic terrorism, right? So the, the actual prosecutor, uh, prosecutorial body here, the one that's actually putting people in prison or bringing forth criminal penalties, they're not using this domestic terrorism concept as nearly as flippantly as the politicians, right? Because if they were to do it, meaning the DOJ, they would have to go through an adjudicatory adversarial process with opposing counsel and so on and so forth, and maybe their assertions of domestic terrorism wouldn't hold up. Now, there was an exception to this that I actually wrote about in July, where you had one uh, U.S. attorney do this bizarre little uh, logical trick where she said that one defendant, um, this guy Paul Hodgkins, operated in what this U.S. attorney said was the, quote, the context of domestic terrorism, although she wasn't accusing the defendant of actually being a domestic terrorist, right? She said, we're not asserting that he is a domestic terrorist, but he was operating within the context of domestic terrorism, which is a bizarre kind of logical uh, trick to kind of put domestic terrorism in the record as like a informal enhancer, but not actually have to formally satisfy the requirements involved in bringing it officially as a sentencing enhancement. Um, so that has happened, but by and large, uh, as, as Gerstein reported, uh, the Department of Justice has shied away from using any of the tools in their arsenal, of which there are many, related to domestic terrorism to actually bring uh, cases or obtain uh, convictions or uh, arrive at sentences for these defendants. Now, why is that? Well, again, because they would have to be challenged on their claims, right, by, by lawyers in, the, in, the, in, in a due process scenario, um, whereas that's not a restriction that applies to politicians who just run around screaming domestic terrorism if it seems to touch the right emotional buttons. Um, so I think it's notable, you know, so what, so when you, if you're, you know, self-effacing and you, uh, subject yourself to any of this coverage or look at what politicians are saying, and of course they all have these very grand pre-prepared statements to go out today and follow a certain formula where, where they're solemn, but yet also resolved to take action to prevent blah, blah, blah. They had this whole routine. Uh, and if you see any of these statements, and I just named four because that's the number that I uh, came across uh, just on a cursory search. Uh, but if you see kind of the term domestic terrorism or domestic terrorist being cited as a reasonable description of January 6th, whether in aggregate, meaning the event overall, or in terms of the individual participants, just ask yourself, okay, so why hasn't the government, why hasn't the prosecutors... Why isn't the prosecutorial authorities who are devoting such massive resources to this? I mean, Merrick Garland gave a statement, you know, the attorney general yesterday saying that they're going to pursue this seemingly to the end of time. And there could be hundreds more arrests to the total of 700 plus. Why haven't they actually gone through the official process of designating any of this domestic terrorism? Well, I don't know. Maybe it just doesn't meet the criteria. Ever thought of that? Uh, apparently... Many of these politicians have not. Um, and I guess, you know, in conclusion, this all goes to why my instinct from the uh, beginning of this bizarre saga around January 6th has been to 
try to approach it with a bit of dispassion, a bit maybe even you could say of cynicism, I'll admit that, uh, just in terms of the constant melodrama and the constant hyperbole around the... Not only does it maybe not hold up scrutiny descriptively, it also gets invoked for a whole wide variety of other purposes uh, in terms of popularizing domestic terrorism as a as a penalty to kind of in, informally or politically level against people without having had to undergo the burden of proof to, to substantiate it. Um, clearly, January 6th was a precursor to a huge uptick in demands for censorship of social media and the internet writ large with, um, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram banning Trump and banning lots of Trump supporters and then Parler being kicked off the internet. Uh, you know, so the historical magnitude that was ascribed to January 6th has been used and cited as the uh, justification for a whole lot of sweeping measures that have altered society in some pretty fundamental ways. So that was the reason why my initial kind of instinct was to maybe kind of tamp down on some of that. Um, so if anybody has uh, a thought, thank you for listening to my soliloquy. And uh, okay, we'll go to, don't know your name, but go ahead. How are you there, Chris? You got to unmute. I was um, driving and had to get back into the app. What's up, Michael? How are you doing, man? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. A snowy day in Denver is trying to survive, but uh, um, I don't want to. I don't want to be liable if <laughs> you have, you're fine. You, you swerve. You swerve into a snowbank because you're on a call-in episode. It was Michael Tracy's fault. <laughs> yeah. I swear, there, there, prob- there probably would be people on the internet who would blame me for that. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> there definitely are people that would blame me for that. <laughs> the internet's full of shitbags. Hope I can curse on here. Um, yeah. Hey, so I just jumped in. I didn't hear the beginning of your of your monologue, and um, I did see you yesterday and, or maybe two days ago in Brianna's space. You didn't get a chance to ask a question. It's a little sad. I was curious what you were what you were going to ask. But uh, as far as January sixth goes, um, I was in a space this morning with with Aaron Mate and or Mate. I always get it mixed up how it's accented, but. Um, <clears throat> He uh, he had a couple people on, a couple conservatives on, and um, very interesting. The stuff about that one guy whose name I can never remember, who was there like on January fifth, instigating everybody, saying we're going in. Who seems definitely to be uh, uh, at least a, an FBI informant, if not more than that. Um, <clears throat> I just don't know why, like, he was on the most wanted list or, uh, you know, a list of people they they wanted to interview or, or take into custody. And then the Internet identified him and he came off of their list. It was really, you know, interesting. I guess all that is to say that it seems to me like 1-6 really was more of a, an intelligence op than a spontaneous... Um, event that came together just like Russiagate was. I mean, it was, that wasn't a spontaneous event. That was something that 
that was, you know, over some period of time. But they're definitely, the intelligence agencies are, are grasping for more and more power. And that, to me, is what ultimately the most important part or the most important takeaway is from 1-6 is, you know, the, the grab of intelligence agencies for more power and more resources. And I guess without really asking a question and having said a bunch of things, I'm curious as to your reactions to, to those sentiments. Yeah, you know, I would hesitate to go so far as to make a sweeping claim that it was just an intelligence op. You know, I mean, I think that puts you in a little bit of a tricky situation where, you know, somebody arguing against you could say, you know, what about this person who maybe punched a cop or something? They're not tied to any intelligence outfit, and they're probably not, right? But that doesn't necessarily preclude uh, interrogation of the ways in which different individuals associated with the government one way or another uh, might have had a hand in certain aspects of it. I mean, I think this whole idea that it's forbidden to even inquire uh, about whether there were people who are FBI informants or FBI-related uh, in, the, in the midst of that crowd is uh, ridiculous, and that's already been borne out that there were. Um, were they the driving force? I mean, I don't think I really subscribe to that theory. Um, it's possible that they could have maybe done some strategic kind of agitation that maybe kind of exacerbated the broader dynamic. Um, but, you know, you know, I've, I've talked to, you know, lawyers for some of the January 6th defendants and such, and, you know, they'll give the whole spiel about how their client, you know, really wasn't anything to do with uh, any kind of orchestrated op, right? They were just there because they genuinely believed in the importance of you know contesting the election result or whatever. So I think, um, I, think I, would, I, I, I would I would I guess I would just caution against making overly conclusory statements that you know could maybe not withstand scrutiny given the what the wide array of people who were there and just um. And then just uh, and I also before I forget, you mentioned that I was on uh, I don't I wasn't on Brianna's uh, column, but I did go on Glenn's uh, yesterday. Was it Glenn's? Okay. Yeah, was it last night on Glenn's? Yeah, it was, okay. yeah, it was last That's night because right. like because I had never actually um, <laughs> utilized that feature before, like as a audience member. So I wanted to see how it, how it worked, and unfortunately, uh, my attempt to troll him. Uh, did not pan out because he ended the conversation. But basically, I, I even remember what exactly I was going to say because he was talking about. Uh, it was something to do with COVID where uh, I guess I wanted to get him to talk about the um, the testing aspect, which is what I've done some writing and reporting on and uh, the endless testing regime that – because I think he said something like, like, I don't have any problem with airlines testing people who are requiring tests to get on the plane or something. If you, you know, they, It's okay to want to detect if somebody has an infectious disease. I don't even necessarily dispute that per se, but I think there are a lot of ominous – Implications of this whole idea that these profit-motivated testing firms now, which are having a bonanza in terms of uh, the money they're making on these testing products, um, uh, just uh, being allowed to run rampant and demand that everybody submit to these these testing requirements, really when they have ceased to have any utility at all in terms of the epidemiology of an exponentially spreading virus that no no medication really could conceivably uh, curb. So 
Uh, that's what I was I doing. <laughs> Raised, but, 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 but mostly yeah, I was just trying to, uh, I was just wor- working out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So, so I think, I think the reason I kind of lean towards it being an op, and you can't say that every person that was at one six was an op. That's just, you know, factually not accurate and numerically and statistically inaccurate. I mean, there were a lot of people there that were there to protest the results and, you know, they have the right to do that. I don't happen to agree with that sentiment, but that's fine. I, I protect their right or support their right to to question the results of an election in this country, which has, you know, other countries can get their election results out night of and it takes us days or weeks to get out election results. And, you know, like Brazil's similarly sized, slightly smaller, but they can get their election results out pretty quick. And we seem to struggle with that. So, I, I, you know, I don't say that people who want to question election results are 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 wrong to do that um i just don't personally believe it but in that circumstance at least uh if you want us to talk about dnc and and uh and uh primary results in 16 or 20 then you know i think i'm willing to a little more willing to to cater to those types of uh questions but um just the gretchen whitmer thing I think is really relevant to any discussion like this. Um, and, and if, again, if I missed it earlier, I know you were alive like 30 minutes before I came in. So if I missed any, uh, of you talking about that aspect, I apologize, but it's pretty clear in the Gretchen Whitmer thing that that was almost entirely FBI, uh, or, you know, more than half of the people, uh, involved in that plot or FBI related in one form or another. And so that's, that's kind of where I come down and the guy instigating saying we're going into the Capitol on one six, it seems to have some FBI relations. And that's, that's where I get off on or feel like it's, it's reasonable to say that it's, it was some sort of an operation because Russiagate was an operation. Russiagate was in 17 intelligence agencies said that they're going to, you know, Russia interfered in the election and then it whittles down and it's only NSA, CIA, FBI. And, you know, after Trump railed against the intelligence community on the campaign trail in 15 and 16, um, they clearly had an interest in, in neutering him as a, as a president. So I don't know. I'll leave it at that unless, you know, um, and let you kind of respond to that. I think, I've said enough, and there's somebody yeah. in the queue now who you can let up and have them speak. But yeah, thanks. Um, well, I mean, on the on the, on the Gretchen Whitmer thing, I mean, <laughs> I felt like I was the only person, at least initially, who read the underlying materials that the Department of Justice slash FBI put out that supposedly substantiated their uh, bringing of charges, and. Even then, I mean, they fully admitted that there was a extremely elaborate operation on the part of FBI informants to kind of cajole and even you might say entrap these guys to commit the supposed kidnapping act. Um, so, I mean, it's not like they even tried to conceal it, really. Um, and if nothing else, it says that there was a very concerted push within these federal law enforcement agencies to prioritize, you know, 
quote-unquote white nationalist or right-wing militia type uh, violence as something that they were going to be extremely assertive in counteracting or kind of, uh, you know, prosecuting, Um, which is a transition from what happened, you know, earlier in the 2000s and 2010s when it was mostly uh, Islamic extremism that was the the focus so that, i mean it, it was it was telling from just a political standpoint in terms of the tides changing right so yeah i think it's worthy context when you're evaluating january 6th i guess maybe it's just semantics in terms of the the language that you happen to use and that i think it's just too that's uh, definitive to say it was an op because then somebody could say okay this guy was there and maybe he did something knuckleheaded and got arrested and he wasn't part of an op and then that kind of undercuts what you're saying. I think there's a more kind of nuanced way to put it, which is that, yeah, there could be an op component, sure. Uh, and I think there's kind of mounting evidence that's, that corroborates that to at least some extent. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, and, and clearly, I mean, January 6th has served the interests of a lot of powerful factions, including the Democratic Party, which is basically just now using it as a uh, rallying cry for why their legislation should be passed. Because, you know, if they, if Democrats don't, aren't elected, that means the insurrectionary Republicans take over and are going to destroy democracy. I mean, it's a really just a tedious <laughs> continuation of the argument that they used against Trump. I mean, one thing in the American political system now is that it's just both parties having the most dire existential rhetoric about one another and, like, the dangers that will be unleashed if the other party wins. When Really, when they get into power, I'm not saying there's no difference at all, but if you look at, like, foreign policy, for example... Right now, it's I mean, Biden's, Biden, yeah, it's very mar- marginal, I'm, especially on Russia and China. I mean, Biden's not doing much of anything that's different from what Trump would have done. Maybe here and there you can find some uh, minor dis- differences. Um, on COVID policy, I mean, even you ha- now have the more like COVID hawk fa- uh, uh, actors within the Democratic coalition in an outrage because Biden is basically just following the Trump uh, policy in terms of encouraging vaccinations, and that's about it. I mean, I don't think Trump would have done the vaccine uh, mandate for private corporations, but that's not even policy yet. That was just something that Biden said in the speech, and it's not even in effect. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, but it, it, it is a pretty sad indictment of the American political system that we constantly have to lurch back and forth between these kind of competing, catastrophizing narratives that parties make about one another. But anyway... Um, let me Can go I ask to, uh, one last me, question before you jump to Jane, or do you want to? Yeah, uh, I just let me wanted to hear let, what you thought about Swalwell and what he did in that doxing situation last week, and then I'll I'll drop down right now. And uh, oh, if yeah, you want to well, answer that, you can. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Briefly, I mean, I, all, I, all I, my knowledge of that was really just me reading the, the thread. I mean, that was like psychopathic. I mean, that was by uh, Swalwell pretending to be open to constructive engagement with a critic of his, which in theory would have been admirable. I mean, if somebody says that they hate you uh, or they're making a threat against you and you're willing to have a pretty elaborate discussion with them to kind of get to the crux of why they have what you feel is a misbegotten belief about your evilness, then, you know, that's actually somewhat uh, laudable in terms of trying to forge common understanding with adversaries. But Swalwell did it as a ruse to report the guy to law enforcement and to ruin his life. So, I mean, that guy, Eric Swalwell, is psychopathic. Um, so let's go to Jane. And uh, Jane, you have to unmute to speak. Oh, can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Hey, okay, so I just have a couple questions. Um, I think, like, I just have a question for you at two angles. Um, first of all, I've, I'm following you through your, 
with you for a long time. I think your work is great. Um, I, I feel like one of the most useful uh, kind of like frames of analysis that you put on, like, for example, like the COVID events or the COVID hysteria is like you've kind of um, put it in the frame of like what jobs are is the, you know, are the elites creating what, what job pro, you know, in terms of like mm -hmm. the COVID commissars and everything like that. So I Ooh, can I steal that term actually? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, like you, you it's, it's really helpful. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Malcolm Kayun, but he kind of like talks yeah. along the same lines about yep. like, you know, like what jobs programs are we creating for the elite fail sons? You know, yeah, with yeah. these things. And so I, I wonder if you could apply that frame maybe to January 6th. And then the other question before I'll let you go is, uh, you know, the other thing is, is I feel like the uniparty or the elites or whatever you want to call them. I don't I think that in a sense, you know, like if we look at like local police departments throughout this country, you know, like we have like police departments that are enforcing max mandates that aren't, you know, we like right now in this country, you can still say that at least to some degree, the local police forces are sensitive to that. They have some, you know, some degree of local sensitivity to the politics and the desires of their constituents. Mm -hmm. And we kind of had the defund the police movement last year. And then the way I'm tying this to January 6th is you see them talking about expanding the Capitol police nationwide and so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering what you think about, like, is this, uh, you know, and maybe this is too much of a conspiracy theory, but just like, you know, as they're defunding these local departments, you know, is the idea to ex overhyping January 6th, they're, they're able to expand the Capitol Police and, the, you know, I don't know. I think you get what I'm saying. But yeah, those yeah, are my yeah. two questions, so I'll let yeah. you go. <laughs> well, well, thank you for the compliment. Um... I, I I don't know that I would ascribe quite as much of like an overarching motive behind, for example, just pumping up the Capitol Police. I mean, I think to the extent that they wanted to give more funding to the Capitol Police is because they want to emphasize the purported threat that these MAGA insurrectionists posed, right? And then to one way to remediate that threat would be to bolster the police force that was supposedly under attack. So I think, you know, I, I think it more comes down to that than any kind of wider societal uh, question around the defund the police movement, et cetera. Um, but, you know, to your first question, which I guess is related. Yeah. I mean, one reason that it was, I think, imperative to have, or at least for me, to have a skeptical attitude toward January 6th when it happened is because when you have such a purportedly seismic event, right, when you have an event that is being put in the pantheon of historic events on the order of Pearl Harbor and 9-11, you know, what did Pearl Harbor and 9-11 produce? That, among other things, vast jobs programs, right? <laughs> um, and opportunities for fake experts, you know, going to the title of this show, which I <laughs> uh, sort of cheekily titled uh, Gathering of Experts. I don't know if you see the plethora of uh, supposed domestic terrorism experts out there constantly who are, you know, analyzing stuff and claiming that they have, you know, secret special insight into kind of collating data that they derive from different social media networks and making prognoses 
based on them about certain threats coming and what have you. I mean, what one thing these seismic events plainly do is they create like a like a fertile ground for new fake experts to flock in and and uh, just kind of claim the insight that then they can monetize and even maybe get affiliated with some pre-existing think tank or something. I mean, all of these think tanks, Atlantic Council, Brookings Institution, um, the kind of more even international think tanks affiliated with NATO and such, including Atlantic Council, um, they all have devoted enormous resources now to the supposed threat to democracy. Um, and they'll connect it to like a sprawling international narrative around autocracies, gaining steam and so forth. And um, what does it do? I mean, maybe even if there are germs of truth to, to, uh, to some of it, uh, really what it does is a, a jobs program or a job subsidy to a lot of people who otherwise would have no discernible skills to do anything of use. But now they can go and say that, oh, I'm a social media extremism expert analyst. Just like, what, what is that? That's a fake title that you invented for your bio. And yet, you know, they make like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year because these dopey foundations give millions of dollars to fund these uh, organizations. Um, I think that's exactly correct. And like, I think I, I, I mean, I was reading, you know, at the time where Afghanistan ended in such disaster, it was like, well, now that, you know, U.S. imperialism abroad has failed in the most dramatic way possible, it's like they're just, they're coming home and they're, you know, now all these people need a new problem to focus on, and so they're going to bully people at home. Well, yeah, and a lot of the, I, I, I was even a bit surprised by the outpouring of rage around Afghanistan amongst factions that you wouldn't necessarily expect, meaning they were, you know, catastrophizing about how this was an abandonment or a betrayal of the Afghans and how they deserve better than for the United States to just cut and run or any of these cliches, right? And, um, but then when you think about it a little more, right, there's been, there were 20 years of apparatchiks flocking into Afghanistan uh, from Europe, U.S., elsewhere, where their careers, their career trajectories were very much intertwined with the work they did in Afghanistan, right? Whether it was some right. NGO, whether it was some kind of development project, whatever. Um, and so for it to have ended the way it did sullies them on a professional, reputational, or even social level, right? So I think that was a source of a lot of the angst that you saw exploding uh, amongst people who were commenting in newspapers and on TV and, and such or making melodramatic denunciatory statements in like the UK Parliament or in Germany or something. Um, uh, yeah, because it's, it's a, these state projects uh, double inevitably as, as progr- uh, jobs programs of various types. And, you know, COVID is the most amazingly expansive uh, experiment in that, you know, in the longest time. So I'm glad you've followed some of that coverage of mine because, I mean, I mean, uh, I talked about this on a previous call, and I think, but just the, the funniest examples of, re- of late for me have been looking at like the film and TV industry where I'm getting these like exasperated messages from people who work on, you know, Apple TV or, you know, uh, Netflix or whatever about just the completely useless make work 
that's been forged by these studios because they're you know reacting to the requirements imposed by the public health agencies and this whole kind of interlocking kind of miasma of nonsensical regulatory schema um, that requires yeah. the creation of these these new roles where even the people doing them and the people subjected to the dictates understand that it's bullshit but guess what there's a lot of vested financial interest behind the perpetuation of it now and i you know it's not like you can roll it back in the same way that you could roll back belatedly the afghanistan intervention right just pull the troops out finally right no like i mean how do you how do you do a withdrawal from covid i mean it's ever it's a it's a billion different bureaucracies coming up with a billion different plans um and a billion different job opportunities so no yeah. it's, it's so true like i i i honestly i i mean i'm not trying to just lay it on thick here but once i started following you and malcolm kayun and like i stopped like uh stopped thinking of like the stuff that the people in charge are pushing stopped thinking of that in terms of ideology and started like seeing it as like jobs programs and patronage the <laughs> yeah. world suddenly started making sense to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah follow the money like you know it's a it's an old maxim but it tends to be pretty uh pretty dispositive i mean i think there is an ideological component as well i mean i think a lot of these especially at college campuses right i mean there is like an ideological drive that's imbued upon some of these bureaucratic organs where they have it as like a political or even spiritual goal to be the most aggressive and assertive about containing or mitigating COVID because it endows them with some kind of superiority. Um, yeah. So I think there is, there is an ideological component there. And just today, I mean, Cornell, which shut down because of Omicron, even though nobody was sick seemingly, um, they just announced a whole new raft of regulations for when the students get back where they have to, you know, they're once again barred from social gatherings. They have to wear now N95 masks all the time and on and on and on. Like, I don't, I don't know that, <laughs> yeah, of course, bureaucracies have as a kind of a goal kind of baked into the very bureaucracy itself of self-perpetuation, right? So they have to always find justifications for their existence and why they should continue Right and why the the money spigot should continue flowing, uh, but I I think you have to have you often have to have it layered onto it some ideological motive, um, which you know derived from twenty twenty where you know being super COVID sensitive was in a way a statement against Trump, but not that everybody who was COVID sensitive. I mean I was COVID cautious for a while, and it wasn't because I have anything to do with Trump really, um, but at, at this point now that it's gone on this long it, i don't know the, the remnants of that kind of initial ideological component probably persist to a large degree anyway i don't know if that makes sense but you kind of spitball no it does thank you so much i'm gonna hang up now yeah yeah thank you all right everybody thanks for tuning in and uh we shall do it again soon take care